Our Father in heaven, we thank you for employing us in your praise today. It's such a privilege and an honor to sing praises to you, to reflect upon the gospel and sing gospel truths that you gave yourself for us through your son Jesus. You've atoned for our sins, you've provided forgiveness, you've shown mercy and grace. These are praiseworthy things. I fear, Father, sometimes it can be lost on us just how privileged we are to be able to worship you together in a place like this and at a time like this and in a way like this. May our hearts be reminded this morning that it is a great privilege, and honor, and gift, and it can be and should be a great pleasure for us to sing your praises. Father, you've loved us and we were unlovable. As we read this morning in your word, Psalm 103, you don't deal with us according to our sins, but you deal with us according to Christ. You love us so much that you've taken our sins and carried them away as far as the east is from the west. You remember them no more. You are a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we celebrate nothing less when we sing your praises. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We pray and ask that you would bless it. That you would take our frail minds and our weak hearts, and our distracted temperaments, and you would help us to see the truth of Scripture, the glory of Jesus, and the wonder of your gift. Father, I normally ask that you would remove distractions, but this morning I ask that you would so thrill our hearts with you that distractions just simply wouldn't matter. That you would be our greater pleasure and our greater delight, our greater joy, that your word as such would be compelling and rich to us. Send it forth in power to have its effect by your spirit, for that is the only way anything good will come. We trust it into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, would you please take your Bibles with me, open them to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 13. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 13. So we pick up in a very unique passage of Scripture, the road to Emmaus. It's unique because of its details. It's unique because it's the only account of it recorded here in Luke. The other gospel writers don't record this conversation or this instant, but Luke does, and it clues us into so much of what's been going on, what is going on. It shows us uh, how big of a deal Jesus' death was to the people in Jerusalem. It shows us the kind of attitude that the disciples have in this moment, the kind of struggle that they're facing. It shows us Jesus' own view of the things that have happened in the last weekend, the last few days regarding his 
trial and arrest and, and death and burial and even his resurrection. And so it's one of these special, unique texts of Scripture that um, I think we can have a lot of joy walking through. Now, what makes it unique for Luke, not only is he the only one that records it, but there's a uniqueness to it in his gospel. And what makes it so unique is this is the first time we encounter the resurrected Christ. If you remember last week in verses 1 through 12, Luke records the actual resurrection moment and day and event. And shockingly enough, Jesus is absent. In the first 12 verses of chapter 24, we don't encounter him. Uh, we don't encounter his, his body. We don't hear him speaking. He's not teaching or instructing anybody until we get into verses 13 uh, through this next passage. This is where Christ shows up. This is where we see the resurrected Jesus. And this is where we find him teaching. And he's teaching and instructing primarily about himself from the scriptures so that people would believe. In the year 1545, I was reading this this week, and so in my own personal reading, something totally unassociated, but in the year 1545, a man named Martin Luther made this quote. He said, let the man who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. If you want to hear God's voice, you want to hear God speak, you want to know what God is doing, you want to know what God is up to, you need to read the Bible. And Jesus reveals what God is up to in this passage. What is God speaking about in the scriptures? What has God's plan been from the beginning of time? What has God been working and doing all throughout history? He's been pointing us to his son, Jesus, and more specifically, his redemptive work through his son, Jesus. Christ is going to highlight that for us this morning. So let's look in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. We'll read this text and then come back and walk through it. Luke writes and reports in verse 13, he says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they replied to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. While he was at table with them, he broke the bread, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road to them, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. We pick up in verse 13 as Jesus appears to them, although they do not recognize it. It's the very same day of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Verse 1 is the beginning of that day. The third day is Christ predicted. It's Sunday. Verse 1, it's the uh, first day of the week, the early dawn part of that day. By verse 13, it's towards the evening portion of that day, or at least leaning towards that day. So the very same day that Christ is resurrected, we find two of these disciples who are not among the original eleven, as they will go to report to the eleven, nor are they ever mentioned in the list of the eleven. There are two other disciples who have been following Jesus. They are going the seven or so miles outside of Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they travel, this man began, begins to approach and follow along with them. Luke is continuing his theme here of carrying two witnesses, a pair of individuals. These two are going to fulfill the requirements of Deuteronomy 19.15, just like we've seen over and over through this gospel, bearing yet again two more witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says that two or three witnesses are required to make a claim. Here are two more for Luke uh, in his gospel, uh, bearing witness about Christ. In verse 14, they're conversing about the weekend's events. Uh, Literally, the language says they're throwing it back and forth. They're tossing it to one another. They're conversing about everything that's gone on in Jerusalem. Jesus' trial, his hastily put together trial, uh, his arrest in the night with hundreds of soldiers coming after him, his death on the cross. And now, even more complicated, a report of a resurrection. They, they can't comprehend the events. They have no category, just like the women who went to the tomb and, and didn't find Jesus. There's no mental category to process for, for them in regards to all these events. So they're, they're wrestling with them. They're tossing them back and forth to one another, conversing over and over about the same details, the same events, trying to come to some sort of understanding until this stranger approaches in verse 15. It's customary for people walking in the same direction in this day and age to begin conversing about the day's activities. So it's not out of the norm that this stranger might join the two disciples. Luke clues us in, it's Jesus. But in verse 16, we learn that these disciples have no idea who this man is. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's a divine passive, which literally means God kept their eyes from recognizing him. 
for whatever reason, God sometimes only reveals certain portions of truth to us. He has a good reason, a good plan, and that's seen here. There's a good reason and a good plan. He keeps their eyes from recognizing them or him. Verse 17, we find Jesus speaking. This is the first time we see him speaking since he's resurrected. And he plays ignorant. What are you guys talking about? What events are you referencing? That is a showstopper of a question. The disciples stopped dead in their tracks. The end of verse 17, they stood still looking sad. Perhaps they're hanging their head. Perhaps no words are coming out of their mouth very quickly. Perhaps there's a moment of silent reflection. It tells us just how deeply the events of the last weekend have affected them. Because they can converse with one another about what's been taking place. But when a stranger comes up and seems to be unaware, they have no words to describe it. It's a hard event. It's been a hard weekend. How do we convey to this stranger all that we're feeling? All that we've gone through? It tells us that not only are they confused about these events, but they are in real turmoil about these events. Almost as if they're thinking to themselves, our master has fallen. We are lost. We don't know what to do next. It clues us into their attitude, doesn't it? It clues us into the way that they're processing things. So they stop dead in their tracks, looking sad. In verse 18, the one named disciple in this passage, Cleopas, directs his gaze to Jesus. And his sadness fuels a sort of a rebuke and a sort of frustration. And he says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware? It's ironic, isn't it? Because out of all the people, Jesus is the one who is most aware. Out of everyone, Jesus knows what has happened this last weekend better than anyone. He's more acquainted with the events and even the secret hidden events taking place on the cross than anybody ever will be. But Cleopas doesn't know that. His response emphasizes the word you, Y-O-U. He puts the answer squarely to Jesus. Are you really ignorant? Are you really unaware? Are you a hermit? Have you lived under a rock? These last few days have been a big ordeal. The whole city's been up in commotion. Everybody knows what's been going on. Who are you? And how do you not know? Jesus doesn't change. In verse 19, he says, what things? That question bothered these two disciples, bothered Cleopas enough to rise up into this mild rebuke here. But Jesus responds, 
really with a test of faith and a question that gets right to the heart of the issue. He wants the heart of these two disciples to be revealed and exposed. So he says, what things? And Cleopas responds in verse 19 through verse 24. With a rather good summary of Christ and his mission and his work. He says, first, these are the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. The things concerning concerning the, the ministry of the Lord. He's a man who was a prophet. Mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Right off the bat, we see that though Cleopas has a, a proper understanding of the ministry and work of Christ, it's still filled with sorrow and disbelief. We see that first and foremost in the past tense use of his language. Jesus was a prophet. For, for these guys, Jesus is still dead. And at the very best, he's missing. Though they've heard the reports that he's apparently resurrected, the belief and faith in that resurrection hasn't quite taken hold in their heart yet. So when they respond, they say, we're talking about Jesus. A man who was a prophet before he was killed. Although they do esteem him highly, he's a prophet. He's mighty in deed and he's mighty in word. He was a great teacher. He knew the scriptures. And he had the signs to back it up. They even attest to his relationship before God. He was one sent by God. He even held esteem in the eyes of the people. They recount how they saw him delivered up and crucified in verse 20. He's condemned to death. Everybody agreed without hesitation. Jesus died. What they don't agree upon is his resurrection. They all agree as well who was responsible for his death. Some think that's a positive thing. Others think that's a, a negative thing. It's quite clear in verse 20. It's the chief priests and rulers who delivered him up. Verse 21, they even admit that they had some sense of trust in him. But, we'd hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Again, past tense. We had hoped. We were trusting in him. We were believing. And even further still, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. He's been dead for three days. That's fully dead. That's final dead. That's a finality. There's no escaping that. Cleopas just relays a very somber account, doesn't he? We put our faith in this man. We followed after this man. We trusted in this man. And now he's been dead three days. We hoped he was going to be the redeemer of Israel. He was a prophet. He was mighty indeed in word. He was believable. And now we just don't know. He continues on in verse 22. Moreover, some of the women of our company, they've, they've amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning and they're declaring that he's alive. That the tomb was empty. They're even claiming visits from angels. 
testifying about this. And these are the women of our company. We know them. We've walked with them. They're trustworthy. Even some of the disciples went and saw just what they saw. Verse 24. Some of the other ones who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. They corroborated their evidence. But nobody can seem to find Jesus. Cleopas gives a very good summary of the events of the weekend and the ministry and person of Christ, but it is filled with doubt. I'm not quite sure what to make of it all. We're not quite sure what to do. We don't really know how to process it. Most people look for the facts and the evidence to determine their belief in Christ. Look at all the evidence Cleopas and this other disciple possesses. All the facts that build up. All the corroborating witnesses. And it does not lead to faith. Faith is an issue of the heart. This disciple possesses a, a proper understanding of Jesus, at least in the beginning. And he may have good knowledge about the workings of Christ. He doesn't understand who Jesus really is. Christ has pierced to their hearts and revealed a very superficial faith. And by verse 25, he begins to respond. Jesus speaks up with the conversation thus far has been dominated by Cleopas and the other disciple. Now it's the Lord's turn. And he responds first and foremost with a rebuke. Oh, foolish ones. You have little faith. You who have refused to believe. And refused to see. The issue for the Lord is not their emotional confusion. The issue for Jesus is their unbelief of Scripture. He says that the rest of verse 25, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. To believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. All that's been given to you. All that's been written for you. All that's been recorded for you. James Edwards writes, and he says, Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for disbelieving the evidence or disbelieving the witnesses of the women or even for not recognizing him. He rebukes them for reading the scriptures without understanding and without belief. And he says the problem for the disciples is not one of their head, but one of their heart. You're slow to believe what's been given to you. You're slow to believe the testimony of God. You're slow to believe what God has gifted you in the Scriptures and in the prophets. For Jesus, one needs to only look at the Scriptures to see God's redemptive plan and purposes. To see that the Messiah was to suffer and to resurrect. He says so that much in verse 26. Was it not... Necessary that the Christ should suffer 
for these things and enter into his glory? Does it not say, does it not point you to this reality? It absolutely does. And then in verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's a very revealing text. Because the issue in the text, again, doesn't deal with the evidence of the resurrection. It deals with faith in God's word. Belief in God's revelation. Jesus takes issue with these disciples, not because they're questioning the women, but because they're questioning the prophets. And in questioning the prophets, they question God. The fundamental issue here for Christ is a lack of faith in divine revelation in the scriptures. And that has always been the issue for God's people. Since Adam and Eve exemplified disbelief in God's word. The church has always had an issue turning to the word. For understanding. It's presumptuous of these disciples to think that they can understand the workings of God apart from study of the Bible. And the same is true for us. It's presumptuous, prideful for us to think we can understand the workings of God in this world and in our hearts apart from study of the Scriptures. And that's where Christ takes issue. You've neglected the Word. You've neglected the prophets. You've neglected Moses. God has made it abundantly clear this is the plan and the purpose. You know what's striking about verse 27 is that Jesus or Luke doesn't record the passages Jesus goes to. We have a few other instances in the, in the New Testament uh, where the passages are recorded. I think of Philip in Acts when the Ethiopian eunuch is riding in his chariot. He's reading Isaiah 53-7 and he's lamenting because he doesn't know what it means. Philip comes along and begins to explain Jesus starting with that very passage and moving through the rest of the scriptures. But Luke doesn't record that here in verse 27. He leaves it very broad, general, and vague. And the point of doing that is to say all of the scriptures bear witness to Christ. Every passage points to Jesus. Every passage declares God's redemptive purpose in sending his servant to suffer and resurrect. And Jesus issues forth a rebuke, not again because they disbelieved the women, because, but because in effect they disbelieved him and his foretold word. And again, the issue for God's people has always been this lack of study and this lack of depth in regards to the word of God. I find the high level of biblical illiteracy among God's people today to be nothing more than what it is in this passage. An evidence of a lack of faith and a heightened arrogance. I might be the only one, but I find it very startling that most professing Christians are more well-versed in politics than they are in a single chapter of Scripture. 
or well-versed in whatever you want to fill the blank in than they are in a single chapter of Scripture. Well, the account here of the road to Emmaus and, and what Jesus is unfolding here is unique and exciting and, and pleasurable in, in many ways. It's also very, a very stern warning to us. For we too might find ourselves like these disciples. Unnecessarily confused about the work of God, mainly because we do not study the Scriptures to know God. Found even to be doubting the things of God. Though they're right there written in front of us. Well, Christ gives them the greatest gift He can. He doesn't, um, he doesn't coddle their felt needs. He doesn't try to comfort their emotional distress and their turmoil. He does the best thing He can for them, and that is expounding the Scriptures. In verse 27, when it says He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself, it literally means He exegeted the Scriptures, which means He exposed them. He brought the truths of Scripture to the surface so that they might see and believe. God's plan for people to have faith in His Son and believe in His powerful working is the exposition of Scripture. Is having the Word of God laid bare before us. You want God to work in your life and you want God to to bring somebody to salvation. You want God to do all these wonderful things like we should want. The answer is laying open the Bible. And that's what Christ does. He exegetes scripture to them. And by the end of his teaching in verse 27, it becomes quite clear that it is the resurrected Christ who is the interpretation of all that the Bible has to say. Everything that we read and everything that we look at is seen now through this lens of a suffering and risen Lord. Which means He's not only the fulfillment of Scripture, He's the actual actualization of Scripture. His works give it completion and clarity and understanding. And in stark contrast to these disciples, the resurrection doesn't confuse the works of God. It opens them up to be beautiful and glorious and whole. What Jesus has to offer for these disciples is priceless for them. A clear teaching of what the Bible has to say about God's redemptive work that leads to belief. That leads to faith. Verse 28, they draw near to their destination. And Jesus acts like He's going to go a little farther. But they prevail upon Him in verse 29, urging Him, stay with us. It's toward evening. The day's now far spent. The, the sun's going down. It's not safe to travel uh, we need to eat. Why don't you stay with us, please? So he went in and he stayed with them. In verse 30, while it's not his house, not his table, he assumes the role of host. So thus in the passage, he's been the uh, unaware traveler. 
the preacher of Scripture, and now the host of a meal that's not his own. And he does what he customarily did. He sat at table, took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. And then verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. The second divine passive in the, in the passage. Meaning, God opened their eyes and they recognized him. Must be true every single time. If a person is to see Jesus, God must first open their eyes. For our eyes will never be opened by our own achievement. They must be opened by God's mercy and grace. And it follows quite appropriately that their eyes can only be opened to see Christ once they have been opened by the Scriptures. For your eyes and my eyes will never be opened any other way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. It's not some idle routine that we do when we sit under preaching. When we open the Scriptures to study. When we read the Bible and take it into our hearts and our minds. Well, immediately once their eyes are opened and they recognize Him, He vanishes from their sight. And they say to each other in verse 32, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road? While He opened to us the Scriptures? The immediate impact of Christ is evident. He was speaking with His mouth into our ears, but He was really working in our hearts. Bringing life. Regenerating. Inducing faith. Helping us to see and helping us to believe. And we couldn't put it all together, but now it's so abundantly clear. Our souls were burning because Christ was with us. I wonder how long or even how often we can encounter the resurrected Jesus without our hearts burning for Him. I don't think He's conveying some command or description of what has to physically happen. Uh, hearts burning just means this, this eagerness, soul, spirit working of desire for God and the things of God. It's that realization when you're being made whole in the image of your Creator, when you find no greater joy than in, in the presence of God, when you're most satisfied with Jesus, when you find yourself to be true and complete and whole in the presence of Christ. That's what these guys are referring to. Did we not feel whole when Jesus was speaking? Did we not feel complete were not our souls stirred? Church, I think if we encounter Christ, our souls will be stirred. I think if we have reverence for Scripture and they're open to us, our souls will be stirred. I think if we have little faith and we plead with God and we search the Bible 
and we meet with Jesus with diligence, our souls will be stirred to believe. Is passion missing from your life? Is devotion missing? Is your faith weak right now? Is confusion abounding in your mind and in your heart? The answer is not to run away. The answer is to run to Christ. The answer is to dive deeply into the Scriptures and let Jesus stir them up within you. Verse 33, this has had such an impact upon them. Their hearts have been so transformed by this encounter with Jesus that at that very hour they returned to Jerusalem. Now remember, verse 29, the day is far spent. It's not safe to travel. We need to stop and eat and find lodging. But by the time Christ has revealed himself to them, and by the time verse 33 comes around, their prior hesitancies to continue traveling have dissipated. And that's because when you really encounter the resurrected Christ and your heart really is transformed by him, obstacles begin to melt. And you do what is necessary, you declare his glory. You declare His resurrection. You declare His salvation. You declare the working of God in Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. Who cares what time of day it is? We need to get back to Jerusalem. We need to bear witness. We need to tell people what has happened. So they go back to Jerusalem. They find the eleven and those who are gathered with them together. And they realize, verse 34, we're joining into a chorus of witnessing Christ. Because that group in Jerusalem is already saying, the Lord is risen. Indeed, He's appeared to Simon. In verse 35, they add their voice to the mix. Guess what He did with us on the road to Emmaus? And the breaking of bread. I think overall, this account is one in which we find Christ tracking down disciples to help them believe. Because after all, God wants you to have faith, doesn't He? God wants you to believe in His Son and believe in the powerful working of His resurrected Son. But how does God go about doing that? He does it by laying the Scriptures open before us. By giving us of His Word. And illuminating their truth through His Spirit. To the point that we really encounter the resurrected Christ. And our hearts burn within us. And we have no other option but to tell people and bear witness to the saving work of Jesus Christ. This passage is unique also because it's a new day for the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, the ministry of the disciples. It's the first clue that we get of what life is going to be like now after Jesus' resurrection. And there are some clear things here in this text. He's not always going to be present. He's not always going to be visible. He's not always going to be teaching. But some other things are very clear as well. 
we are to have faith. We are to find our hope in the Scriptures. We are to be moved with emotion and passion by the work of Jesus. And we are to bear witness to it over and over and over again, join, uh, joining a large chorus of brothers and sisters declaring the very same thing. Our Lord is risen indeed. And He has made Himself known to me by blotting out my sins and making me a tool in His hand. This is the new resurrection ministry of the church. This is what we do now. We call people to have faith in Christ based upon the trustworthiness of Scripture. To encounter the resurrected Jesus in such a way that you can no longer casually exist, but you're stirred to devote yourself to Him and to bear witness to His glory forever. It's been my prayer for a long time that Christ would stir our hearts like this. And I think that's the question we have to ask here. Has God opened our eyes to see the beauty and glory of Jesus? Have we encountered Him in such a way as this? Or are we just familiar like these disciples may be? Do we possess a genuine faith that moves us to action? Have we really encountered a living God? Or are we merely just going through motions? A living God affects change in our hearts. If that change is evident. It's likely you don't know a living God. It's a travesty of idolatry to do what these disciples did. And ignore the scriptures. And fashion your own God out of your own mind and your own comprehension. Instead, let us be people who search the Bible. Behold the glory of Jesus. And surrender our lives to him in faith. Father, we do thank you for your word, your most precious and beautiful word. And that in it, we have a constant source and wellspring of your glory. We're not left to wonder who you are. We can open these pages and know you fully, know your plan See your working. We thank you for the gift of the Bible. We thank you that when we have little faith or no faith at all, you meet with us to help us believe. To help us see, to have our eyes opened. I pray, Father, you would accomplish this work today. Lord, that we would meet with you and you would stir our hearts within us. In such a way that leads us to, to an active witness of you. Help us, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.